in his helpful and brilliant little book, Precious Remedies, which was first printed in 1652, the Puritan Thomas Brooks tells a story about a Jewish rabbi. It's a a short story. He only spends a few sentences on it. He said that this rabbi was pressing the practice of repentance on his students, urging them, now get this, urging them to be sure to repent the day before they died. (laughs) Thinking the obvious, one of his students replied that the day of any man's death was very uncertain, to which the rabbi said, repent therefore every day, so then you will be sure to repent the day before you die. Don't misunderstand Brooks. He's not denying the sufficiency of the blood of Christ to cover all sins, past, present, and future. He's simply telling his readers that repentance should be the daily life of the Christian. He's echoing the first of Luther's 95 theses. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. And Brooks has a funny way of handling the potential misunderstanding here. He doesn't do what I did and and take the time to explain himself. He doesn't seem the least bit concerned about being misunderstood. He simply ends his story by saying, you're wise and you'll know how to apply it to your own advantage, period. And that's exactly what we want to do this morning Part one of what we'll see in this morning's text is about repentance, and part of it will be about reconciling with the one who has repented. We want to learn from it, we want to be wise, and we want to apply it to our own advantage. We're currently studying Paul's letter to Philemon, and I would encourage you to have your Bibles open so you can see the entire letter at a glance. We're going to cover a lot of verses this morning. Uh, This letter is a delightful little glimpse into forgiveness and reconciliation being worked out in the early church. Paul is appealing to his friend Philemon to forgive and reconcile with a man named Onesimus. Onesimus is Philemon's slave, and it seems that Onesimus stole from Philemon and then ran away. Paul is sending Onesimus back, and he sends this little letter along with him. It's interesting, Paul gives no explicit doctrine in these 25 verses. Though it's clear that what he's looking for is forgiveness and reconciliation from Philemon to Onesimus. But Paul doesn't even make that appeal in the form of a command, as we'll see in this morning's text. The New Testament teaching on forgiveness and reconciliation sits in the background of this letter. It is understood that Philemon knew the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles when it came to forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, before we jump into this morning's text, let me remind you of two things that we've already learned. First, remember Paul's opening greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 3. That is, the grace of the gospel is what brings peace with God. 
And that same grace is what brings peace with others. You could say that your vertical peace with God is the foundation to your horizontal peace with your brothers and sisters. That's the first thing. Second, remember the distinction between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness focuses on the offense, and reconciliation focuses on the healing of the relationship. Forgiveness can take place in the heart with only one person. Reconciliation requires at least two. Forgiveness is one way. Reconciliation is reciprocal. It's two-way. Forgiveness releases the offender. Reconciliation is the effort to rejoin the offender. Forgiveness involves a change in thinking and feeling about the offender, whereas reconciliation involves, involves a, change in the, a change in the behavior by the offender. Forgiveness is a free gift to the one who's broken trust, and reconciliation is a restored relationship based upon restored trust. So as a believer, you are obligated to forgive. And you know that from Matthew 18 and many other texts. We found Thomas Watson helpful here. He wrote, this great duty of forgiving others is a crossing the stream. It's contrary to our flesh and blood. It is difficult to forgive. Men forget kindnesses, but remember iniquities and injuries. But it is an indispensable duty for the Christian to forgive. We are not bound, he says, to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. And that's an important concept. We must forgive, but sincere reconciliation requires both parties. You aim to restore the relationship, you seek reconciliation, but reconciliation isn't always possible. But if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's Romans 12, 18, and there are many other texts like it, all calling you and I to live at peace with our brothers and sisters. This morning, we get to hear Paul's appeal. What we have here is a picture, a New Testament glimpse of mediating for forgiveness and reconciliation between brothers who are in conflict. And here's how Paul does it, verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. That connector accordingly is important. Some translations use therefore, and it points you back to what Paul already said about Philemon. Paul's saying, because of those things that mark your character, that is those three marks, that you're a man of faith, that you're a man who loves your fellow brothers and sisters, and that you're a man of fellowship, the kind of fellowship that's rooted in your faith and that mutually shares all the good things that are among us as a body of believers, because of that, I'm going to ask something of you. I could command you to do this. I'm in Christ, and that gives me boldness to do exactly that. 
The risen Christ himself gave me apostolic authority. I could flex that authority because what I'm going to ask of you, Philemon, is actually required of you as a Christian. But I prefer to appeal to your heart. I want you to do this out of love. I want you to be motivated by Christ-like love, not by dry duty. I want this act of forgiveness and reconciliation to be of goodness, your goodness of your own accord. I don't want you to feel compulsion. I'm not twisting your arm. I want the grace of God to kindle love within your heart so that it overflows in peace to your brother Onesimus. Now, Paul begins to pluck Philemon's heartstrings. That's not my description, it's others, but I think they're right. Verse 9, I, Paul. This is me, Paul. I'm your brother in Christ. Remember, you came to faith under my ministry. I'm your partner in the gospel. And by the way, I'm old. Paul was probably in his late 50s, maybe 60 when he wrote this, but that was getting on in years at that time, especially given the fact that Paul had lived such a hard life. This was the guy who was arrested multiple times, lashed five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned one time, and shipwrecked three times. Paul probably hadn't aged well. Not only am I old, Paul says, but I can't be there in person to ask this of you. I'm writing this letter from prison. Not that I've done anything wrong. I'm just preaching the gospel and planting churches. I'm a prisoner here for the sake of Christ. That's how Paul begins his appeal, by plucking Philemon's heartstrings. And there's more of that to come. But that begs the question, and I've heard some of this surface in community groups, is Paul manipulating Philemon? I think it's a good question. I'm going to answer it like this. It depends. It depends on how you define manipulation. You see, if you define it as controlling, influencing in a devious or underhanded manner, that's Oxford English Dictionary, definition 3A, then no, I don't think Paul is doing that. He's not being devious or underhanded. He makes it very clear what he wants Philemon to be motivated by. If, on the other hand, you define manipulation as handling with skill or dexterity, to turn, to reposition, to shape, that's Oxford English Dictionary, definition 1B, then yes, Paul is using skill and dexterity and delicacy to turn and reposition the heart of Philemon to his brother Onesimus. That's precisely what he's doing. And if you've ever been the go-between in a conflict, you've probably done something similar. Moms and dads, I know you have. When little Johnny, and I don't know why I always use the name Johnny, I feel sorry for the Johnnies, but... When little Johnny doesn't want to share his toys, what do you say to him? Now, he knows the rules, and you're the boss. You could simply order him to share his toys, right? But what do you often do? 
you often prefer, like Paul, to appeal to little Johnny's heart. Johnny, look at how many toys mom and dad have given you. Or, what if you were at a friend's house, Johnny, and he wouldn't share his toys with you? How would that make you feel? Or, you know how happy it makes me when I see you sharing your toys. What you're doing is delicately trying to stir his little sinful heart to do what he ought to do, but for the right reason, which is love. You're trying to kindle within him a desire to share. You're not trying to guilt him into it. What you really want is for him to be motivated by love. And so you're trying to get him to think about the situation from different perspectives to stir his heart. What you're saying in different words is this, Johnny, consider the generosity of your mom and dad. We have given you so much. Now, doesn't that generosity stir in your heart a desire to be generous to your friend? Or consider how bad you feel when someone doesn't share with you. Doesn't that stir your heart to not want your friend to feel that way? That's what I think Paul is doing here. It's subtle. And of course, you have to be careful. Mom and dad, you're not saying to Johnny, if you share, I'll buy you another toy or a piece of candy on the way home. That would be stirring his heart toward a purely selfish end. And that's not what you want motivating little Johnny. Do you see the difference? It is subtle. So is Paul manipulating Philemon? Maybe, but it depends upon how you define the word. He's definitely trying to stir up within Philemon a desire to forgive and to reconcile for the sake of love. Paul makes that motive explicit. It is for the sake of love. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul is now introducing a new factor for Philemon to consider, repentance. By one definition, repentance is godly, heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. Calvin defined repentance as the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of Him, and it consists in killing sin and being alive in the Spirit. Now, I like both of those definitions because they both focus on turning from something and turning to someone. They make it clear that this turning is a work of God's grace upon your heart, and they make it clear that the turning is to God. I'm going to paint with broad strokes here, but this is what biblical repentance looks like. Repentance is acknowledging your sin, calling your unbiblical thoughts, feelings, desires, motives, words, and behavior what God calls them, sin. It is taking full responsibility for your sin. It is owning it. It's godly sorrowing and grieving over what you have done. 
It is confessing your sin both to God and to anyone you have hurt or wronged. There are no buts or excuses. I'm sorry I said those things to you this morning, dear. I didn't sleep well. No, your lack of sleep did not cause you to sin against your wife. You sinned because what was in your heart came out of your mouth. No excuses. Confess your sin. It is then asking for forgiveness. It's not merely saying that you're sorry. Saying you're sorry could mean any number of things. I'm sorry I got caught. I am sorry that this turned into an argument. I'm sorry this turned into such a hassle or whatever. No, I sinned against God and I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Repentance is making restitution where necessary, if possible, and to the extent you can. Like Zacchaeus, that wee little tax collector, he repented and said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, you catch that? If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. That's restitution. Repentance, then, is not merely turning or ceasing from sin, but it is positively turning to God and doing what is right and just and good. It is not enough, wrote Brooks, that the tree bears not ill fruit, but it must bring forth good fruit, else it will be cut down and cast into the fire. And finally, repentance is then using the gracious means that God has put at our disposal to change. And this change is a changing of our hearts and a changing of our behavior, the way we live. Thomas Brooks would also tell you this about repentance. Repentance can be painful, but it is good medicine for your soul. Now listen to how he said it. Repentance is the vomit of the soul. And of all medicine, none is so difficult and hard as it is to vomit. There's your picture of repentance. It is the syrup of Ipecac for your soul. It forces the poison of sin from you. And that's what needs to happen for there to be reconciliation. Now, our question is this, was Onesimus repentant? Well, we only have these 25 verses to go on, but let's take a look. Go back to verse 10. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And Paul wants Philemon to realize that God has done a gracious work in the heart of Onesimus. He's no longer the same man. Paul led him to Christ. Onesimus is now a new creation in Christ. And this is where Paul uses his play on words. Verse 11, formerly Onesimus, a common slave name that means useful, was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. That's the story of Onesimus' conversion in a nutshell. Useless Useful becomes a useless thief and a runaway slave. Then he comes to faith and becomes truly useful 
as a brother. So he's a spiritual child of Paul's now, and he is a brother of Christ to Philemon. We see that in verse 16. And the apostle Paul himself vouches for the reality of this man's new birth. That right there is pretty solid ground for believing that he's repentant. But remember, repentance includes more than a change of heart. It also includes a change of life. Verse 12, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Onesimus had become very dear to to me, Paul says, So dear, it rips my heart out to see him go. He's been serving me in prison and has proven himself useful and faithful as a brother. Now I'm sending him back to you, his master, to face what he has done. And clearly Onesimus is submitting himself to that. We call those marks. Those are marks of true repentance. So yes, it seems that Onesimus had had both a change of heart and a change of life. This is the same dynamic of repentance that we find in other places in the Scriptures. Look at how Paul describes repentance of a thief in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Ephesians 4, 28. He says, Let the thief no longer steal. That is, he negatively turns from his sin, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Not only does the thief turn from his sin, but he turns toward God and does what is right. That's repentance, and that's what we find in Onesimus. But there's still that matter of restitution. Paul will get to that in a moment, but first, he interjects something very interesting in verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I love what Paul's doing here. He's saying that God has a sovereign purpose for what happened. Philemon needs to realize that. Philemon may have been a victim here, but Paul is saying that God was sovereign over that. Yes, Onesimus meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And perhaps, Paul says, this is one of the 10,000 gloriously good things that God was doing. He was saving the soul of a sinner and giving Philemon a new brother forever. God is sovereign over evil, Philemon. Now, what about that restitution? We know that Onesimus still owes his master. Let's see how Paul handles that in verse 18. If Onesimus wrongs you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Philemon has every right to punish Onesimus, and have him work off his debt. It's not likely, though, that Onesimus had the resources to uh, make restitution. So Paul here shows him mercy by asking Philemon to charge what he owes 
to his own account. And several writers note here that Paul is modeling Christ-like sacrifice by having the debt of Onesimus credited to his account, by taking his place and paying his debt. And that's certainly part of what's happening here. The reason for restitution is that justice demands it. That's why restitution is included in our definition of repentance. It is a recognition that an injustice has been done and must be made right. It's part of owning your sin and taking full responsibility for what you have done. Restitution tells the other person, I have wronged you and I must make it right. In this case, Paul is offering to cover the debt, which if Philemon allows, will bring justice to the situation, at least in human terms. Paul then ends his appeal in verses 20 through 22. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Again, that's more of what we saw earlier. Paul is trying to stir Philemon's heart to do what is right. Forgive and reconcile with your brother. That will refresh my heart. Then Paul expresses the same confidence that we saw at the beginning of his letter. Verse 21, confident of your obedience. You see, it's required. What Paul's asking is required. It is obedience. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Oh, and by the way, he adds in verse 22, prepare a guest room for me. I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Now, Paul might be putting some accountability in place here. Um, some commentators think that. I don't know. Um, but clearly, Philemon is on notice that Paul will be visiting if and when he can. Now, that's about all we can determine from this little letter about Onesimus and his repentance. He's had a change of heart and a change of life. He's a new creation in Christ. He's proven himself faithful, and now he's returning to face his master and the consequences for what he's done. Paul even vouches for this man. I'd say there's good evidence that Onesimus was a repentant man. Now back up to verse 17. What should Philemon do? What are you to do when your brother or sister comes to you in repentance. So, if you consider me your partner. Now Paul's making an interesting connection here. I'll mention it briefly. Remember in Paul's prayer report in verse 6, he uses the phrase, the sharing of your faith. And we learned that that word sharing was the word koinonia. It means fellowship. It's fellowship or the mutual participation that arises from faith. The word partner here is a different form of the same word, which tells us something about what Paul means by being Philemon's partner. If you consider me your partner, one who is mutually participating with you in the body of Christ, then let me ask this of you. You see, this request has everything to do with fellowship among brothers and sisters. Continuing in verse 17, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. There are two principles in play 
in this reconciliation. There is a receiving and there's a restoring. The word here for receive is often translated as welcome. That's how several English versions translate it. Philemon, welcome Onesimus as I know you would welcome me. That's the first step in reconciling. Welcome or receive the repentant one. Now, this can be very difficult. You've forgiven them. They've repented, but now you have to open yourself up and welcome them back into relationship with you. Of course, you need to be wise about this. Remember Thomas Watson. We're not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. And trust takes time and repentance. And of course, there are circumstances in which reconciliation is simply not possible. And I'm thinking specifically about concerns for your own safety. But if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Receive them. That's principle one. The second principle is to restore them again into relationship with you. Receive them as, receive him as you would receive me. Philemon, welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me, your partner, your brother in Christ. Again, there are circumstances that may prevent full restoration. Divorce followed by remarriage is an all-too-common example. Reconciliation in specific cases might be a matter of degrees, and full reconciliation might not be possible this side of heaven, but our aim is to restore the repentant one back into relationship. That's reconciliation. It involves both a receiving, a welcoming, and a restoring. So... If Luther was right, and the life of the Christian is a life of repentance, then I would say that it is also a life of reconciliation. But now what? How do you live in ongoing repentance and reconciliation with God and with others? The answer is back where we started in Paul's opening greeting. Grace to you and peace from God. Let me close by pointing you to that grace. That grace is the source of power for honest, unguarded self-examination and the power to live the grace of repentance and in the peace of reconciliation. First, the grace of repentance. Four mercifully short points. One, The good news that Christ died to save sinners, the gospel of grace embraced by faith, is the gateway to this life of repentance. The Holy Spirit lives within you, awakening you to your sin, convicting you of your sin, and empowering you for genuine repentance from your sin. The Spirit gives you the grace to see your sin and the grace to turn from your sin. Two. The gospel of grace embraced by faith means that you are accepted by the Father. The blood of Christ covers your sins. The Father sees you through the lens of His Son. He sees Christ's righteousness, not your sin. 
So when the Spirit convicts you of your sin, you can run to Him. You can repent because you know that He is ever and always for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Himself up for you, how will He not also with Him graciously give you all things? Number three, the gospel of grace embraced by faith assures you that there is no one to condemn. That should give you a boldness and a freedom to confess anything, the worst of sins. The enemy will try to condemn you with lies because of your sin. Others will try to condemn you because of your sin, but Christ himself is interceding right now on your behalf. He will not cast you aside. Do not listen to the lies. Rest in Christ. Enter into true and free and bold repentance. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Number four, the gospel of grace embraced by faith assures you of Christ's love for you. The sin for which you are repenting cannot separate you from the love of Christ. You are secure in Him. For I am sure wrote Paul, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as you begin to live out that life of repentance, And as the brothers and sisters around you live a life of repentance, there will be need for reconciliation. Again, the gospel comes to our rescue. Two final pointers. One, the the gospel of grace embraced by faith assures you that reconciliation is possible. When you struggle to reconcile with a brother or sister who hurts you, Spend time meditating on your sin against your Creator and on the reconciliation He provided by the death of His Son. Meditate on Romans 5 and think of your own condition. You were weak, you were ungodly, you were a sinner, and you were God's enemy. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Think about each of these words used to describe you, weak, ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, we're weak, we're ungodly, we're sinners, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us since therefore we have now been justified by His blood much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, you were an enemy of God's, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. 
much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let the gospel of grace overwhelm you by reminding you of how much you have been forgiven and how great the love of God is for you. And then let God's love for you stir up within your heart a love for your brother and sister. And lastly, the gospel of grace, embraced by faith, gives you the power to reconcile with the right motive for the sake of love. This is why Paul could appeal to Philemon, not with a command, but for the sake of love. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this text is not merely meant to pluck your heartstrings. It is meant to point you to the source of motivating, controlling power for reconciliation. Verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. And that's it. That's the power source for true reconciliation, the love of Christ controlling you. And what's the foundation? Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for whose sake he died and was raised. John said it in fewer words, we love because he first loved us. The gospel of grace is what empowers you to repent and to reconcile. And there is so much more that I could have said and that I should have said. I'll just have to say with Thomas Brooks as I close, you're wise and you'll know how to apply it to your own advantage. But let me pray for you.